Amen. Why don't you tell him right now, you're worthy. worthy. Tell him you're worthy. worthy. And then you can say, you're worthy of it all. (laughs) I tested you. And my mom over here sang, thank you so much to the rest of you, you did not sing. That is not cool. Hey, listen, my name is Carlos. I'm so thrilled to be with you today. I am so encouraged and lifted up uh, just by the songs that we've sang, the prayers that we have prayed. And my prayer today is that God would speak to each of you, regardless of where you are on your journey of faith, whether you're here seeking, apathetic, thrilled, on fire for God, I believe that the, pow- that, that the power of God flows through the Word of God in the Scriptures. And that's why we're going to read right now from Hebrews chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up. We're going to be in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. And I want you to read what the author writes. He says, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Here's a question. How do you run a marathon under two hours? I don't know if you saw this, but in 2019, in Vienna, Eliud Kipchoge, Probably the most famous marathon runner of our time already has achieved all of the Olympic medals and acclaims that he has uh, sought to achieve. He set out to run a marathon under two hours, and his time required him to maintain a speed, listen to this, of four minutes and 35 seconds per mile. Any of you come close to that? How did he do it? What kind of training did he need? Even though he was already the fastest marathon runner on planet Earth, even though he had the best kind of training, even though he had the most incredible doctors at his side, what Eliud needed in order to run a marathon under two hours was a team. He needed a team of 42 world-class runners that would help him to set the pace so that he could accomplish the goal that was before him. If you didn't know this, what ended up happening is he had a team of runners. He had a team of doctors who analyzed essentially every mile and how many ounces of water he would need so that it wouldn't weigh him down, but so that he can continue on the space, so that at the end of the day he was able to accomplish this incredible feat of running a marathon under two hours. It was an entire team that made the race possible. Well, for you and me, as we read this chapter of the book of Hebrews, we realize that the Christian life is a lot like running a race. 
and that God has told us and has a plan and a purpose for us, set out for us to run this race of faith. But we don't get to run it just by ourselves. If we're going to get to run the race of faith successfully, we're going to need a team of people running the race by faith. That our relationship with God and how he has designed you and me is not just something that's vertical, but something that includes, it's horizontal. It includes other people. That if you and I, wherever you are, running this journey, this race of faith, if you want to do it successfully, then you need to do it collectively together with other people by faith. So wherever you are today, the question that emerges from this passage then is, how do we run this race? Where are you today in this race of faith? You may be seeking. You may be discouraged. You may feel stuck wherever you are. How do you run this? Number one, if you're taking down notes, I want to encourage you. Just a couple of simple truths today. Number one, how do you run this race? Number one, you need encouragement from a collective faith. Encouragement from a collective faith. And let me tell you what that means. Um, look at verse number one. It says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of what? What's the next word? Of witnesses surrounding us. What does that mean? Thank you. For, that's, that's amazing. You could talk back to me. I love it. The author of Hebrews, here's what it means. The author of Hebrews is referencing the previous chapter, chapter 11, otherwise known as the hall of faith. There's this um, image of people being on this stadium, a large cloud of witnesses. This is what the author is writing about, that they're, they're looking at us and literally cheering us on on this race of faith. In Hebrews 11, we read about Abraham and where he lived, and even though he didn't know where he was going, when God called him to do, he went by faith. By faith, Moses crossed the Red Sea as if though it was on dry land. We read that by faith, the walls of Jericho, this city of Israel, Joshua walked around it seven times. They sounded the trumpet, they shouted, and the walls came down, and God gave them the victory by faith. By faith, the cloud of witnesses suffered. They died by the sword. They were destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. We have this cloud of witnesses cheering you on right now. You need that encouragement from a collective faith, but not only back then, we have a collective faith now. You see, by faith, if you're here and you've trusted in Jesus, by faith, somebody made the decision to share the good news of Jesus with you. And because of that, you're here, and your life has been transformed. It was by faith that years ago, a group of people decided, you know what, we're going to start a church here in Temple Terrace called Mission Hills, then later called First Baptist Church of Temple Terrace, then once again called Mission Hill. By faith, that was started so that people would encounter the transforming grace of God. It was by faith, listen to this, that a, a young woman by the name of Cassie, that's my wife, by the way, grew up in Newberry, not far from here, a small town that I didn't even know existed. She trusted in Jesus, went to Bible college. 
She came down to Miami, not really knowing the culture of the language. She was grown up in a small town. She wanted to preach the gospel to her grandmother, okay? Don't get scared. She's not a preacher, but everybody's supposed to preach the gospel. Amen? That's right. So here's what happened. She preached the gospel to her grandmother, and then, of course, she met yours truly right here by faith. No, no. <laughs> and listen, it was by faith in 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, that 11 people gathered around Zoom <laughs> to be able to start and begin the journey of planting a church in Miami called Reality. And that church started a little bit over a year ago in the city of Miami by faith. Isn't that encouraging? Doesn't that encourage you? I, I, I want to point something out. Why does a collective faith encourage you and me? Because it shows us that God can do incredible things through flawed, sinful people. People just like you and like me. The Bible doesn't hide reality. It exposes it so that we can behold the magnificent grace of God. And these people that are just as imperfect as you and me encourage us by running the race of faith. And if we're going to see this church continue to push the kingdom of God forward in the city, in Tampa, and across the world, it's going to take all of us running the race by faith together. You see, when you take a step of faith, and maybe some of you, uh, uh, you know, have known each other for some time, and when one of you takes a step of faith, it encourages somebody else. When one of you, by faith, begins to share the gospel with a coworker, right, something that you've been praying for that's been really hard to do, when you begin to do that by faith, it encourages other people to run the race by faith. When we become a generous people, right, in a culture of selfishness, it encourages others to run the race by faith. When some of you take the step to serve because Jesus came to serve and not be served, it encourages others to be able to run this race by faith. Amen? So, in order to run the race of faith, we need encouragement from a collective faith, right? How many of you need encouragement today, right? But then number two, we need to ruthlessly fight our sin. Ruthlessly fight our sin. Look at what the text says. It says, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. We all need encouragement, and at the same time, we need to ruthlessly fight our sin. For some of you, what's standing, what's standing in front of the call that God has for your life is your unwillingness to deal with your sin. When a marathon runner runs a race, he or she does everything they can to make sure there isn't more weight on them than necessary. They select the perfect shoes, the right shorts, the lightest of shirts, because they want to be able to persevere. And when you and I run the race of faith, 
If we try to do it while ignoring the sin in our lives, it's like we're trying to put on a bunch of backpacks and run a marathon. Sin, it creates this burden in our human heart. It's a kind of weight. It's very tough to persevere when we're enslaved by sin. And here's what I mean by sin. When you look at the Scriptures, if you're here and you're just checking out Christianity, sin is the lie that we tell ourselves about God, about the world, and about ourselves. Sin is by nature deceptive. It begins in Genesis 3, in the first chapter of the Bible, we see that it begins as a lie. It deceives you. It's a lie about God. It tells you, well, maybe he's not who he really says that he is in the Scripture. Maybe he doesn't really exist. The first words of Satan to Eve, the serpent, he said, did God really say? And that's what he does in our lives. Sin deceives us. It enslaves us. It, it's a trap. <laughs> it ensnares us. And how do you recognize it then? If you're running this race, you're moving forward. You know that God has a plan and a purpose for your life. How do you keep running forward by faith? And how do you deal with your sin? How do you recognize it? Well, the good news is it's the Holy Spirit <laughs> that shows you through the church, through Scripture, through people through your friends. Thank God that there are people around us who aren't impressed by us and can call us out on our sin. And if you don't have anybody like that, you need to work on that. If you don't have anybody who's ever confronted you on your sin and on what you do and how you behave and how you think, you need better friends. Or you need to cultivate better friendships. Because if you want to run this race of faith, you need to ruthlessly deal with your sin. You will not recognize your sin unless God reveals it to you. It reminds me of the most famous king in the Old Testament, King David. He's running the race of faith, but he's stuck in the palace and he's idle. It's an incredible story. It's fascinating because the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart. David, who has slain his tens of thousands, he's famous. The Holy Spirit is on him. He's had so much favor from the Lord, but then one day he begins to look at what he's not supposed to look at. He begins to desire Bathsheba, the wife of one of his soldiers who's in battle. He summons her to the palace. He sleeps with her. Then he essentially kills her husband by sending him to the front lines of the battle. It's a lie. In the moment, David doesn't feel like a sinner. He feels like a general. He feels like a king. And this is what sin does in your life and in mine. It deceives you. It lies to you. It ensnares you, and it keeps you from running the race of faith. And you know how David finds out? It's a friend. The prophet Nathan reveals to him his sin so that he can come out of that and go before the Lord and actually move forward in the kingdom. 
How do you run this race of faith? You have to deal with your sin today. Don't minimize it today. Listen, your sins not only affect you, it affects everybody else. Your sins, that's another lie, that your sin is only about you. It's not. Do you know how many families I've met with that sin has destroyed because of the action of one woman or one man? And maybe today, what is that for you? What's the sin that's ensnaring you? What's the thing that you're minimizing that's actually keeping you from the call that God has for your life? What is it? Is it pride? Is it lies? Are you minimizing lust, right? What do you think in the areas of power, in the areas of money? What's keeping you from running this race with freedom and faith? You have to deal with your sin. Number three, how do you run this race of faith? You have to run it with endurance. So it takes encouragement. We need the encouragement of a collective faith. We need to deal ruthlessly with our sin. But then if you're going to run this race, you're going to need endurance, perseverance. And perseverance is one of those things that maybe when you're young in your faith, <laughs> you... Um, you're not going to realize that you need this later on. When you're young in your faith, you're like, dude, I can move mountains. When you first come to know the Lord, there's so much passion, so much zeal. It's such an incredible time, and I pray that that zeal continues. But what you realize is after a couple of decades of following Jesus, suddenly this word perseverance begins to jump out of the Scripture. <laughs> and you're like, wow, we're going to need endurance to run this race. I want you to think about this. The author of Hebrews is writing to Christians who were suffering through persecution and adversity. Their culture was so hostile to the gospel that Christians were being thrown in prison. They were treated like second-class citizens. Their rights were being taken away from them, and this led some of the followers of Jesus to want to go back to being Judaizers, to Jews. It's like, dude, we can't deal with this anymore. Being a Christian is really hard, infinitely more so than it is today for us here in the United States, right? And yet at the same time, have you ever felt the weight of being a Christian in a culture that increasingly seems to be hostile to Jesus? So the writer of Hebrews says, we've got to persevere. We can endure. We can run the race. There is effort involved in running the race. The mission that is before you requires sacrifice. You cannot have growth and comfort at the same time. If what you're seeking from God and church is to just live a comfortable life, you will not grow. It will require perseverance and sacrifice. It makes me think of the story of um, John Grisham. You ever heard of this dude, John Grisham, writer? Uh, it used to be one of my like, hobbies back in the day. I used to read um, le legal fiction, you know, and one of the first books I had read was a book called The Firm. Anyways, I started uh, looking this up, and I heard the story of how he became a writer. Maybe you didn't know this, but uh, John Grisham has sold more than 400 million books, in 1984, he was a 29-year-old lawyer, and he's in a courtroom, and he's listening to this case that absolutely wrecks his heart. He remembers that he wanted to hold a gun 
and shoot the person that was talking about this case. Right? He, wanted to, he wanted to stare at the defendant, wishing he had a gun. Grisham is so physically shaken by the trial that he um, decides, you know what, I think I want to write about a case, a courtroom. And then the first novel was born. Here's what he does. He wakes up at 5 a.m. every day for three years because he's got a full load of cases. 5 a.m. and begins to write every day. And at the end of the third year, he finally finishes the book, and then he begins to um, then pitch it to these different uh, printing presses. He goes to 27 of them, and they all said no. Finally, after two years, one printing press called Winwood Press says, okay, you know what? We're going to print out this book. It was a novel called A Time to Kill. They do a short run. It's 5,000 copies. He can't sell them. (laughs) Nobody buys them. And if at that moment, after five years of endurance and perseverance, If he had given up, you and I would have never heard of the name John Grisham. But after those five years, he gets another idea. And he's like, you know what? I think I have another novel in me. I'm going to call it The Firm. And so he begins to wake up once again at 5 a.m. every morning for two years. And finally, he writes this book called The Firm, which spends 47 weeks as the number one book of 1991. And with the firm being a runaway hit, Winwood Press realizes they have a gold mine in the first book. So they reprint that, and John Grisham becomes one of the best-selling authors of legal fiction of all time, all because he decided to write one more book. Some of you may be running this race, and you've been walking with Jesus, and you've suffered not for one month, not for one year, but for several. And there's a part of you that feels like you want to give up, because maybe you haven't seen him come through in the way that you thought he was supposed to come through. And today, I'm here to tell you that, listen, God is calling you to persevere because he's a good God, that your life is not done yet. He's, listen, He has a purpose and a plan for you. Continue running this race, not by might, not by power, but by His Spirit, by faith. Where do you need perseverance in your life? If you and I are going to be a people of faith, if we're going to have a church that's going to last in the next 50, 100 years in our culture, then we're going to have to hold our convictions in a culture of compromise. We're going to have to be a people of joy in the midst of struggle. We're going to have to be a people of prayerful dependence in a world obsessed with self-reliance. If we want to see generational impact come through this church and the kingdom of God here in the United States and generations after generations, after our children, after we're long gone, so that they can experience a transforming love of Jesus, it's going to take a group of people in Tampa that were crazy enough to believe that Jesus is alive and that you're going to have to persevere to see that happen. Amen? Running the race of faith. But how, how do you persevere when you're tired? 
how do you endure when it feels like your metaphorical armor is torn down to pieces by the fights that you've endured in this life? The answer is at the end of verse 2. This is the key of running the race of faith together. The author writes, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You cannot run the race with perseverance or get rid of the sin that so easily ensnares you or even receive the encouragement from a collective faith without fixing your eyes on Jesus. If you want to run the race of faith, you have to run in such a way that you're not doing this. You can't run like that, right? Because what happens if you run this way and your eyes are this way? Talk to me. You trip. You hit your face on silly things. I know this because hypothetically I've seen it happen to other people. <laughs> it's interesting, the, um, that Greek verb uh, that's translated as keeping or fixing our eyes on Jesus, it implies that you cannot have your gaze on two things at the same time when you're running. You cannot run the race of faith by looking and by your heart being divided. If you're trying to run this race and then you're distracted by the pursuit, it's a, listen, it's a good thing to pursue your career and to work to the glory of God. But if that is your holy ambition, it will not work. If you're looking at particular relationships to satisfy you, if you make an idol of your family rather than serving them, listen, if you keep your gaze on everything else rather than God, you will not be able to run the race that God has set before you. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to joy, an invitation to an adventure. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's why Jesus says in the most famous that he ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. We have to keep our gaze on Jesus Christ, to walk with him, to follow him, to be with him, to develop our relationship with him. This takes work. In fact, the goal of ministry is for you to become a disciple of Jesus who then makes other disciples. Amen? Amen? So when you fix your eyes on Jesus, you realize a couple of things. It says it here. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
He is the author of it. He completes it. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? To complete it. He's going to do it. What your job is is you got to fix your eyes on him. You got to behold them. You got to behold the cross, the beauty, the resurrection. It's all about Jesus. The Spirit of God testifies about Jesus. The Father sends Jesus to us. It's all about Jesus. We fix our eyes on Him. And if you've ever played, anybody ever play baseball here? Yes? Okay, cool. I'm from Venezuela. This is like our national sport. What happens is there used to be this big guy called the Big Cat. Andres Galarraga, back in the day. He used to have the stands that he went like this when he was batting. And as a kid, I, I'm just watching the TV like this. When I went to play baseball, guess what I used to do? I used to do this. Why? Because the more I beheld him on the TV and beheld his batting glory, I wanted to imitate him. It's the same with Jesus. When you behold him, when you fix your gaze on him, you can't help but to want to imitate Jesus. You want to live his life. What you realize is that his gaze, when we gaze on him, he begins to transform your life. His glory is transforming to you, to you. He is the pioneer and, perfected, and, and, and perfecter of our faith. You can run the race of faith. It, this is interesting, especially if you're suffering here today, because he himself endured the suffering on the cross. He took our shame and our sin on the cross. And what was it that held him there? What held him to the cross? Was it the nails? I mean, Jesus had performed incredible miracles. What held him to the cross? It says on the text right here that it was because of the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and then he achieved victory through the resurrection, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, meaning he is ruling and reigning, asking some of you to come into relationship with him. I'll finish with this. You need an encouragement from a collective faith. You need to ruthlessly fight your sin. We need to do that. We need to run with perseverance, fixing our eyes on Jesus. In the year 490 B.C., when the Persian army, which was the most powerful military force of the time, was advancing and destroying Greek city-states, the Athenians heard that the Persian army was coming for them. Greek military powers showed up with a much smaller army to fight the Persians in the city of Marathon. Although the Greeks were outnumbered, they had an incredible military strategy, and after hours of battle, the unthinkable happened. The Greeks defeated the Persians in an incredible victory and prevented being, preventing them from being stamped out by the Persian Empire. This was really good news to the Greeks. 
And since it was such good news, they couldn't wait to get home to share what had happened after this victory. So instead of everybody going at the same time, they sent one of their young soldiers, a man by the name of Phaedipides. Okay? If you're looking for baby names. Okay? Phaedipides. He wanted to share the good news of victory with the city of Athens. And the distance between Marathon and Athens, guess what? It was 26 Point two miles. Phaedipides was so excited by the news of victory, and he was aware of the magnitude of the news of victory. And so he ran all 26.2 miles from Marathon to Athens. And once he arrived in Athens, after running the entire race, he could only muster up enough energy to say one word. Nike. Victory. The news of triumph that was carried by this Greek military messenger, listen to this, had enough power to help him carry on the 26.2 miles. Watch this. The reason you and me can run this race of faith and we can do it with joy, the reason we can keep moving forward together by faith is because the triumph has already been achieved by Jesus Christ. And the good news of the gospel can propel us forward in running this race by faith. The gospel is powerful enough. Listen, Jesus is powerful enough. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. He breaks the chains of injustice. He destroys the sin in our lives. If you are here and you're seeking a relationship with God, he wants to have that with you. If you are enslaved by your sin, if you've been minimizing, my prayer today is that Jesus, in a very loving way, would wreck your heart so that you could turn your life and experience the joy that he offers all of us. So here's what I want to challenge us to do in this culture of faith, of joy. What I want us to do is I want us to spend some time praying for these four different things. Number one, if you're here and you need encouragement, we're going to have a prayer team. Some of the pastors are going to come up here in the front. We're going to sing a song. We're going to normalize doing this in church. Amen. I know this is part of your culture where we can pray for one another. Amen. So if you're here, you need encouragement. You need a word. You feel like your faith is failing you. Wherever you are, you're online. You're in the back of the room, and God is speaking to you. Listen, I want to challenge you just as we sing, as we pray, to come up here and have somebody speak a word of encouragement over your life. When I said, how many of you need encouragement, almost all of us raised our hands. If you need that in your life, could be about war, could be about school, could be about relationships, could be about your family, could be about your future. I want to invite you to come here to the front. Number two, if you're fighting ruthlessly about your sin, like there's something that you feel like you cannot overcome. And today you came, once again, apathetic, discouraged because you feel like you can't move forward in this race. I want you to come. And I want you to be able to share that with a brother or a sister so that we can pray for you. If you're here and you need strength and endurance to fight, come and let's pray together.
Let's pray for one another today as we respond to this message. And then finally, if you're here and you want to have a relationship with Jesus and you know it, he's calling you. He's knocking on the door of your heart and you've never trusted in him. You've never followed him. I want you to come. Share that with one of us. And we'd love to lead you in a time where you can place your trust in Jesus. Maybe, in fact, you know what? I'm going to start with that. If you're here and you say, you know what, Pastor Carlos, man, I really want to give my life to Jesus. Why don't you tell him right there where you're seated? God, I want you in my life. Help me to fix my eyes on you today. Forgive me of my sin and help me to trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Why don't we stand now? Let's sing. Let's respond. We're going to have our team down here. I'll be down here. We'd love to pray with you.